This is the Northeast Law View podcast. I'm Matt. And I'm Neve. Today we're talking to former Newcastle Law School student Emily Kootin about what she's been getting up to since she graduated and climate change law. Emily, thanks for joining. How are you doing? I'm fine, thank you. How are you? I'm good. How are you, Neve? I'm good. I've had a restful um, time off uni but I'm kind of ready to start again now and get into the swing of things again yeah definitely so Emily tell us a bit about where you are at the minute and what have you, what have you been getting up to since you graduated last year yeah I I'm in Copenhagen Denmark and I graduated in July and um, shortly after I got an internship in Copenhagen and moved here in August and I work for a consulting firm which has a contract with the Danish Ministry of Foreign Affairs and it's a sustainable development internship where um, we work with NGOs and companies that are implementing development projects in Africa and Asia. So I'm just part of this team that helps implement these projects around the world. And what has it been like graduating and transitioning um, after uni in a global pandemic? Um, well, it was it was normal for me. I don't have anything else to really compare it to. So um, it was fine. I knew it was going to be difficult to graduate and then enter into this world where you don't have a job and you need to get your career on track. Um, graduating itself, like without graduation, was a little bit disappointing because I was expecting my whole family to come to Newcastle. My best friend would have come from New York. And and so obviously none of that happened. Um, it was quite nice in the end what the professors at the law school did for us with, with a virtual graduation, but um, obviously not what we were expecting. And yeah, in terms of um, finding a job, I don't think I've personally been that affected by the pandemic because I think it was something that was going to be difficult anyway. So, or maybe I was just lucky, but um, that I don't think that in itself has actually affected me too much. It might have, it might be different for other people. Hmm. Fingers crossed that I'll get a physical graduation this year, yeah. but I'm not 100% sure. I'm not going to hedge my bets, but fingers crossed. I think, Neve, you, you will out of the three of us probably. <laughs> Um, I'll, I'll lose all hope if I don't have <laughs> if, if I don't have a, a physical graduation when I graduate. <laughs> There's not really much yeah. to look yeah. forward to. I did have a vacation scheme lined up with a law firm in the UK, and that was just at the start of the pandemic, and that was cancelled, um, which was quite disappointing. But everyone's adapting to it, so even that was just mm. replaced with something else, like some sort of virtual experience at the firm. So. Yeah, it was cancelled, but then they made up for it somehow. So I think people in general are just kind of finding other ways to go about things now. And everyone's quite used to it now, you know, a year into this. Yeah. You said about a vacation scheme that unfortunately got cancelled there. And you're only in Copenhagen for the rest of this month, January. What sort of plans do you have for the future? And I guess what, yeah, what's your aim in terms of where you want to be um, and sort of your future applications? Yeah, so I'm applying for training contracts this year. Um, I went through the process last year as well. 
came quite close to getting one. Um, unfortunately, didn't in the end. Mm. And so now I'm just kind of getting back into that process um, a little bit more um, strategically, I guess, and with a little bit more experience in how, how that process works. And I think the main reason that I didn't end up getting a training contract last year was because I was lacking a little bit of um, commercial experience. So hopefully now with this internship that I've just got where I'm working quite closely with companies and businesses, um, I'm in quite a good position to apply for a training contract now. But um, training contracts always have this two year wait. So mm-hmm. I have a little bit of time. So for the time being, I'm, I'm going to stay in Denmark. Um, my internship ends in a month and I'm looking for jobs in law firms here. Just had an interview two days ago, which went well. And I'm finding out on Monday or Tuesday next week whether I've got a job there. So fingers crossed for that. But I do have a little bit of time now to uh, kind of gain new skills, try out new things and open up some doors here in Denmark as well. No, I've been spending some of my Christmas applying for vacation schemes and training contracts and other work experience, but... I also started my um, vacation scheme and training contract applications in second year, and they definitely weren't very good at that time, but I think it was so valuable to get a couple out of the way. And then when I came back in final year, I was much more serious. I knew what I was looking for. And that's when I actually got quite far in a few of the training contract application processes. So I would, I would definitely encourage like getting out some now out of the way. And then mm-hmm. if you do end up having to do it again in a year, you'll you'll kind of be in a much better position to do that. Definitely. So you mentioned that some of the work you do in in the internship is relating to sustainability. Could you tell us a little bit about the work you did when you were still a student at Newcastle with sustainability? Yeah, so that kind of kicked off during my final year when I ran for the environmental and ethics rep position of the Students' Union. And in the beginning, I was... Uh, just holding sessions for students where I'd have a professor or a few um, lecturers from around the uni speak on their area of research, which could have been like sustainable transport or the effects of climate change in European cities or impact of animal agriculture on the environment. And then students would just get to pose questions to these researchers. And then I'd also have someone from the university there who's more like the account the person who's accountable for these kinds of questions when it comes to university management. So we'd have someone from the catering team there to say, what is the university doing in terms of where our food comes from and what kind of diets we cater for on campus and things like that. So it was a chance for students to engage with the university's um, policies on basically its position on on sustainability. Mm. And I did that until for just for several months. And then about halfway through my final year, I started setting up a student sustainability committee in the hopes that the work that I had started would carry on after after I left. So that actually has come into being now. And every school can elect a an environment and sustainability rep. And just like you've got your course reps and um, and school reps, you can elect an environmental and, sustain- and sustainability rep. And those people will sit on this student 
Environment and Sustainability Committee, which mirrors the university's Environment and Sustainability Committee, and they liaise back and forth. And this committee is basically a, a contact point for university management, students union, and all the students and, and all the schools. And so far, I've just found out there are about nine environment and sustainability reps around the university. So nine different schools, plus a postgraduate rep and the current environment and ethics rep who chairs the committee. And then the sustainability team who are all staff members. They're quite closely involved with the work that the committee does. So I was very pleased to hear that that actually got up and running even during this pandemic. And as far as I know, right now they're looking at implementing or designing some sort of sustainability induction. So, you know, when you come to university as a student, you get introduced to everything. You've got a few weeks of induction in the beginning and now sustainability is going to be a part of that. And um, that is going to be funded by um, the money that came out of the strikes last year, which is exciting news. Yeah, it's, it's a real example of, I guess, change in uh, approach to the um, topic of sustainability. So how did you get interested in sustainability, which led you to then apply to be the um, sustainability rep at the student union? Um, I think it started in my second year when I joined a society which doesn't exist anymore. It was called Renew Castle and it was like an environmental and sustainability society. And that's when I started to learn about my personal impact on the environment. And I really started to think about how my lifestyle uh, impacts the environment in terms of CO2 emissions. So I started trying to be conscious of how I travel, take less flights. I stopped eating meat and dairy. And so it kind of started as a personal interest and I became really interested and kind of concerned on a much larger scale about how we as a society impact the environment. And then I left Newcastle, I went away and did a year abroad in Copenhagen where I actually studied climate change and the international legal framework. And I took part in the organization of the Copenhagen Climate March. And I met loads of people who were studying uh, climate change masters. So I really started to learn about climate change there when I was in Copenhagen. And then when I came back, um, the sustainability team held a climate conversation. And that's when I kind of learned about the university's policies on carbon emissions and the goals. So um, the university has a net zero carbon emissions target by 2040. And this mirrors the city council's target for net zero emissions and also the UK government's um, net zero target. And what they all have in common is that um, they only include certain emissions. So there are three different scopes of emissions, scope one, scope two, and scope three. Scope one and two are direct emissions as far as I'm aware, and scope three are more indirect. So they're much more difficult to measure. So basically student out of term travel is not even counted in scope three emissions at all. It's not even counted as an indirect emissions from the university. Mm. Um, but to give uh, an example of direct and indirect emissions, 
emissions from the university's vehicles, which drive around campus, take students on trips, things like that. Those are direct emissions. Indirect emissions is business travel by staff members to conferences. Um, indirect emissions is supply chain waste. And indirect emissions is our investments in companies because the university um, has investments, of course, like any institution. And until recently, the university was investing in fossil fuel companies. So they're the problem and we were investing in them. So in, in a sense, that's our indirect admissions as well. And I think these all fall under scope three and there's no target set to them for net zero emissions by 2040 or anything like that because it's too difficult to measure what our CO2 emissions, um, if they're indirect emissions, it's just too difficult to measure. And then there are certain things that aren't even included in any of the university's emissions and student out of term travel is one of those. And okay. it's a question whether those should be included in our emissions or, or should they not? Um, yeah. And it's interesting when the university has a business model that relies on international students um, mm. being given places at the university. And yet if those students are flying from China then they're contributing to the student out of term travel emissions or perhaps even during term. Um, at the minute, those aren't even counted as even as indirect emissions of the university. So it's just some interesting questions that arise. But actually in March of this past year, the sustainability team got a report done on the university scope three emissions. And it's the first time that we've ever had a general idea of what is the magnitude of these emissions? What is it exactly we're faced with when we're trying to make reductions in this area? And just to give like an, an idea, um, scope three emissions are like 10 times what scope one and two emissions are combined. And yet our net zero target only applies to scope one and two emissions. So it's really insane. Like when we say we've got a net zero target, we don't because it doesn't include any scope three emissions mm. and it doesn't include the emissions that aren't even included in scope three. But the point is, is that it's a good starting point because this, the people who are working on this are working with all the information that they have. So they've got their net zero target for scope one and scope two, and that would be by 2040 and hopefully earlier. And then they're also trying to make re emissions reductions in scope three where possible. So there has been introduced a new policy on business travel. Um, and as far as I know, it, it passed through the university council where I think what it requires is that if, you're going, if a staff member is going to a conference in the UK, you don't fly, you take a train or something like that. And, and there are other universities around Europe that have this policy for the entire continent. So I think there's a university in the Netherlands that won't let its, its professors or lecturers fly to places if the conference is in Europe. So, I mean, yeah. there's there's space to account for um, certain circumstances, for example, disabilities and things like that. But generally that's kind of the direction that this kind of business travel policy is going in. So even though scope three is like this huge, seemingly insurmountable task, there are things that, can, that are being done. I think Newcastle has got a 30% reduction target for business travel, for example, which is within scope three. That's very interesting. Um, and yeah. it's something, yeah, as I say, it's something that I 
never really thought about because you're hearing more and more about people and you know countries businesses wanting to reduce their emissions and be more environmentally friendly and that's yeah the sort of something I never really thought about is like with the example of Newcastle the the emissions from students traveling to and from Newcastle is related to Newcastle University but yeah yeah, it's it's really interesting yeah that's why it's difficult to have these conversations because um, it's very like carbon dioxide is not something you can see. You can't see mm-hmm. your emissions really. Um, so the conversation often tends to focus on other things like plastic waste or something that's much more tangible. If you look at the areas that the sustainability team works with, carbon emissions is one area. And then they've also got energy, waste and recycling, procurement, investments, water, travel, and biodiversity. So it's separated into these different areas. and. I think because on a global scale, the way we talk about climate change is in terms of CO2 emissions, that's how we need to address the problems. So it's very difficult to say, okay, everyone just stop using plastic straws and that's kind of going to like resolve the issues, which like, I think we need to address the problem in terms of of CO2 emissions and that's why this net zero goal is so important and that's why the scope three emissions are so important. That's not to say that a zero waste lifestyle is not um, kind of important or valuable. Mm. That's also something that I strive towards but it's just when we're looking at the university as a whole I think we need to frame the discussion in terms of carbon emissions and we need to get students on board with this kind of thinking because Otherwise, it's just like this small sustainability team who kind of understands the reality and is trying to push these policies through. But if more students had an understanding of what the university is up against and what, is, what their goals are, then it'd be much easier to kind of facilitate this dialogue between students and the sustainability team and staff members on what direction are we taking our university in, in terms of sustainability. I want to move on to talking about, I guess, your dissertation and the blog post. Um, so do you want to explain a little bit about what your dissertation was on and how that links to what the blog is about? Yeah, um, so I, like I said, I had just come back from a year abroad in Denmark where I studied climate change and the law, and I knew that that was something I wanted to write about, um, both because I am personally invested in sustainability and that's something I really find interesting Um, and because I really like international law and it was very interesting to get a chance to study the regime on climate change and the governance framework at an international level. So I had a very broad topic that I started with which was international climate change law and then I had to decide what it was that I wanted to focus on and I was actually toying between two ideas. The first one, which I thought of for about a year was to um, write about international transport because aviation and maritime transport are two of the biggest emitting industries globally. And yet they're not regulated by international law or domestic law because every country is pretty much responsible for its own climate policies and emissions reductions. So international transport is not going to fall under any country's 
emissions because if you've got a flight that's going from the UK to Brisbane in the in Australia that was a bad example because there are no flights that do that <laughs> if you've got a flight that's going from um, Hong Kong to Brisbane in Australia and the airline is Chinese and the passengers come from all over the world whose emissions are those so it, that, that was something I was really interested in the beginning. And then what I ultimately ended up writing about was climate finance, because that links to the um, kind almost to climate justice and the equity of international law and the relationship between developing and developed states. So I ended up with this, this topic, which was international climate finance, why the system is flawed, and what this has to do with the relationship between developed and developing countries. Mm. From your experience of doing this station, clearly the topic you've done on is something that you are interested in, um, not just within your degree, it's something that you're externally interested in. I guess you can only say from one experience, but would you for someone thinking about doing a dissertation, do you think doing something that you're interested in like you are is important? It definitely helps. Um, you are going to spend a year writing this dissertation and it's a lot of work. So it's good if it's something that you're also personally motivated about. Um, but I don't think it has to be your biggest passion. I don't think, um, I mean, I, I was fortunate because this is something I, I really, know a lot about and it's kind of important to me personally as well as academically I guess but at the end of the day it's still it's still the work you're still going to put a lot of blood sweat and tears into this and it's not necessarily going to be fun um, and when I think back to all the essays that I did during university at Newcastle I don't think I was personally invested in any of those mm. And yet I really enjoyed the research, the process of writing. And then I was proud of the work that I did at the end of the, the process. So I think you need to put a lot of thought into what you're going to write about when you're doing a dissertation. But I think that's kind of where I would leave it. I think you need, it needs to be a really well-considered decision, but I don't think it has to be your biggest passion or anything. I think it just has to be something you can be motivated about for nine months, you know, and, and you have to be someone who can focus on something like that. And I, I guess you don't want the kind of the other extreme where you do on something you are really, really, really passionate about and then you grow to hate it from having to mm. like do a really big piece of work on. Yeah, or that yeah. your personal feelings to it, towards it taint your objectivity about the subject matter because mm. you need to be able to assess different arguments and criticize your own arguments which yep. you know I actually found that difficult as well doing my dissertation um, you've mentioned climate finance could you tell us a bit more about what that actually is yes it's very complicated um, and this was actually the entire point of my dissertation was to prove how complicated climate finance is and then explain the repercussions on international equity and the consequences on developing countries, for example. 
So to start with, under international climate change law, there's this principle called common but differentiated responsibilities and respective capabilities, which reflects the fact that certain countries have developed their economies faster than others and at an earlier stage. And it's typically Western developed countries that have um, grown their economies, emitted lots of CO2 in the process. And then we started to learn about the, about climate change. And then we needed to put a halt to our missions. But at this point, a lot of countries around the world, developing countries, hadn't really caught up to that stage of development yet. So developed countries are generally more responsible for the effects of climate change that we're seeing now. And they're more capable of dealing with the consequences because they're richer. So this principle just responds to that. And it says, we need to do something as a world about climate change, but it does have to be fair and it has to reflect these inequalities. So climate finance is one of the mechanisms that responds to that disparity. So developed countries need to provide finance to developing countries to help them mitigate their emissions and to adapt to climate change. And there are other, um, there are other types of support as well which are technology transfer and capacity building. But I focused on climate finance. And within climate finance, there are loads of different types as well. And the three main categories are multilateral climate finance, bilateral climate finance, and private climate finance. And there was also at the Copenhagen Accord in 2009, I think, which was um, where all of the countries in the world who have signed up to the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change come together. They do this every year. And in 2009 in Copenhagen, they agreed that we would all raise $100 billion annually in climate finance. And, this, and the start year for this was 2020. So by 2020, um, developed countries or the world as a whole is raising $100 billion annually in climate finance. And we have no idea if how close we are to reaching this goal. And, and I don't think we're anywhere near it, but the reason it's so difficult to find out is because we've got multilateral climate finance, which is where um, a bunch of countries will just put money into a fund. And there are actually 23 key climate funds. So the fact that we've already got 23 and those are just the most important means we've got 23 different funds that have to all add up to hundred billion. Um, and they're all managed by different people. So there's the Adaptation Fund, the Least Developed Countries Fund, and most recently the Green Climate Fund. And um, they've all got different rules about what counts as climate finance, about who gets it, things like that, how it gets apportioned. And then it doesn't even end there because then you've got bilateral climate finance, which is where every single country in the world pretty much can have a bilateral agreement with every other country in the world. So for example, the UK has a has bilateral assistance program with, with other countries. And Denmark has this program called Denida, which is their aid program. And they decide, they, they make agreements with other countries about, about how they're gonna support this country. So when part of the money of out of this $100 billion that we're trying to raise is going through multilateral funds of which there are at least 23, but loads. 
and then there's a lot of money going through bilateral funding, then it's very difficult to measure how much is actually being raised. It's actually impossible. And it's not just because we've got so many different um, sources or flows of funding. It's also because we have different standards about what counts as funding. So for example, if, if Denmark gives a grant to a project in Nigeria, um, which has to do with wind energy, then that's one type of climate finance. But what if Denmark just gave a loan to the people in Nigeria who are building a wind farm and then they need the money back? What if there's interest on that loan? So we need some kind of common international standard about what counts as climate finance and we don't have one. So it just, it means that even if we're raising money um, towards this $100 billion goal, we can't account for it. And there've been a lot of attempts to develop standards of climate finance. Um, I think there's something called the Rio markers and they're all imperfect. And it's so complicated and it's, and it's flawed in my view, because if, if the system of international uh, climate finance is founded upon this principle of common but differentiated responsibilities, which is intended to support developing countries, but the system for international climate finance doesn't work because it's too difficult to keep track of what finance has actually been raised, then the system is failing those countries, which it was actually supposed to support in the first place. And under the Paris Agreement from 2015, every country has to decide for itself what it's gonna to do to address climate change, which means every five years, every country in the world has to submit its nationally determined contributions, which is a document. And this document sets out all the actions it's going to take to mitigate CO2 emissions and to adapt to the uh, effects of climate change. And since every country is responsible for doing this themselves, developing countries have started making conditional contributions. So my argument was that if we have a climate finance system that doesn't work, we can't be surprised if developing countries are making their contributions conditional on climate finance, meaning they're only going to pursue their target of 50% less CO2 emissions if they get $5 billion in climate finance over the next five years from, developing, from developed countries. So conditionality is an issue because it means country, countries aren't really committing to addressing climate change. But I was arguing that it's because we don't have a functional climate finance system. So was the blog post that you did, was that on the same topic as your dissertation? Like, was there anything that was, obviously it was a lot shorter than your dissertation, but is there anything that you focused on differently? Um, I, I basically summarized the main points of my dissertation, but not in an academic way. It was more in a way that is suitable for a blog. So it was just trying to engage people in um, carbon emissions around the world and how this relates to this principle that I mentioned about common but differentiated responsibilities and climate finance. Mm -hmm. So it's a more uh, palatable form yeah. of my dissertation and I just, I just wrote about my dissertation because I'm allowed to choose what I want to write about on this blog. So it's, 
it's just natural for me to write about something that I already knew so well and that I find interesting. So the Hive of Science is the website where you can find the blog, uh, which will be linked in the bio to this podcast. Could you tell us a bit about the Hive of Science? Yeah. So it's something that my friend involved me in. And he's someone that I met in Copenhagen when I did my year abroad there. And he was studying the climate change masters. And we met because we both participated in the organization of the Copenhagen Climate March. And, and then a couple of years later, he and a couple of friends started this website called the Hive of Science, where he's brought a bunch of people together who are interested in climate change and who are interested in, in, in working on this blog together. So we're a, quite a diverse group of people. Most of the people are from Spain. And then there are a couple of people in the US and someone in Indonesia as well. And we write on a really wide range of topics because everyone's got such a different background. There are a few biologists on the team um, and then people who are more interested in kind of technology and things like that, um, social justice or environmental pollution. So we cover a lot of topics on the blog and I'm more interested in kind of the law of climate change or politics. So that's my area that I tend to write about. And, and we can all just decide for ourselves what we want to write about. You mentioned the, a cli- what a climate refugee. I, I'm not, I'm, it's not something I've heard about. Could you tell us a bit about that? Yeah, um, that's actually really interesting because it's a very new concept. And so because some of the most vulnerable um, countries to climate change are island states like Tuvalu or the Maldives, then people, because of rising sea levels, people are actually already having to to move inland or to move country Mm. um, because because of the rising sea levels. And so then this term climate refugee was born to describe someone who has had to vacate their homeland or their home because of climate change related reasons. Mm-hmm. And there are climate uh, refugees in in the in the Western world as well. Um, but coming back to island states, as an example, the Maldives has actually purchased a lot of land in Australia because they're anticipating having to move a lot of their population away from the islands because they're going underwater and. There are climate refugees in in Central America who are trying to trying to flee. And I've actually heard something really interesting, which was that climate refugees who are kind of escaping and trying to get into the US can't admit that the reason they're leaving is because of rising sea levels and that their homes are just being destroyed because climate refugee isn't a protected status under international law. So Refugees are allowed into different countries under humanitarian law, but there's no such thing as a climate refugee under international law yet. So it's not a valid reason to flee your country, which is crazy. And it's something that's changing. And I guess there will be a, I guess a climate refugee will kind of be recognized in the coming years. But as far as I know, it's not yet. Um, But there are consequences because it's difficult for people to actually get to safety but a lot of climate refugees are they're not trying to get out of their country they're just trying to get further inland and i think i saw an article about 
the UK's first climate refugees because we've got areas in the UK which are mm. where the where the sea level is is increasing, and and where I used to live in New York, um, we lived right by an estuary, so that's connected right to the sea, so that's going to rise as well. And the people who live by the Hudson River are going to have to move at some point. Yeah, yeah, that's interesting. That when you said about there can be climate refugees in the West. My first thought was thinking about the UK and how there was a place in Yorkshire, if I'm right, I can't remember. Yeah. Uh, yeah, or two ago where there was a, uh, where everyone had to leave a village because yeah. there was a dam or whatever and it was going to overflow and take out the whole village. Um, yeah. Yeah. So yeah, it's definitely something, as you say, that will, will become, yeah, we'll hear more about, I'm sure. Yeah. yeah, definitely. Every year you see in the UK victims of like the really extreme flooding and things mm. like that you think by like, one year there just there may not be anything left and those people have got to just find somewhere else to live yeah and I think it's really starting to hit people that climate change is affecting everyone because for a long time um and and even now especially like the most serious consequences are in certain places of the world and they're unfortunately already um kind of impoverished countries or mm. Yeah, countries that are already dealing with other sorts of conflict or development issues, but it's becoming much more a reality um, here as well. So like in the US, there are loads more extreme weather events on the southern coast and Australia also has just recently had very serious extreme weather events in Gold Coast in Queensland. Mm. And they're very aware of the fact that it's climate change related. So people, people know that it's happening now. Um, but we're not really on track to um, to stopping climate change yet. And that's kind of what what all these carbon emission goals are about. And that's what the fossil free movement is about, where people are pulling their investments from fossil fuel companies. So we're getting there, but maybe not at the rate we need to right now. I guess we could round the podcast up by talking a little bit about you, Emily. And um, obviously you're in Denmark at the moment. How has that been having to speak Danish and things like that? Um, well, that's part of the reason that I moved here um, because I I really did want to learn Danish kind of at a more professional level. Um, so that's been really good. It's definitely been very challenging um, starting a job where Danish is the working language of the office and um, having to speak with people from the ministry in Danish that was mm. has been kind of daunting at times but I can actually see how I've improved over the last six months so it is kind of exciting and I did my first ever successful job interview in Danish the other day wow. so that was really kind of something I'm proud of even though I don't know if I've gotten the job yet um, <laughs> but yeah, it's good. I really like living here. It's it's kind of exciting to just come to a new country, you know. I get I'm in my comfort zone in the UK and I like being put yeah. out of my comfort zone every once in a while. Yeah, that's something that I've just thought about then. You mentioned before about how you wanted to maybe do a training contract back in the UK. Being able to t- to say that you've worked in a country where you you like you have spoke Danish in a work not just like at home with your family in a in literally in a professional environment you know having an interview in danish that is something that very few sort of uk people could probably say um definitely a point scorer if there ever if there ever was one yeah so that will be really nice to be able to talk about in the future 
right now mm. is still very much a, a struggle <laughs> at yeah. times. It's just, it's can be so challenging and tiring, but it's really great. It is really fun and um, something I'm really interested in as well, so, yeah. I think that that sums it up quite nicely. Thank you very much, Emily, for coming on the podcast. It's been really nice to have um, a change of theory. We've had quite a few academics on, so it's been nice to have a fellow student on who um, it can feel a bit more chatty with and a bit less technical, although what your dissertation was about was quite technical. Yeah, I hope that wasn't a bit too much there, but it was exciting. Thank you. It was a nice nice thing to try my first podcast experience <laughs> checking you'd be able to do a podcast in danish oh my gosh <laughs> <laughs> that's something else i don't know i don't th- i listen to podcasts in danish i don't think okay. i could do on a podcast <laughs> thanks a lot emily um i've really enjoyed speaking to you again um obviously you've graduated but yeah it's been really good to catch up with you yeah really nice yeah um th- thank you again if there are any um alumni professionals or legal academics who are listening and they would like to get involved in the podcast please don't hesitate and send us an email at the email address n-e-l-r at newcastle.ac.uk again emily thank you very much for coming on and thank you for listening